Hi there, it's Jillian, and I want to tell you about Jillian on Love Plus, your way to get even more Jillian on Love each week by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or Patreon. You can access exclusive bonus episodes with extras, including answers to your most burning questions, advice on all things dating and relationships, and much more. Check out the link in the episode description for more information. Hi there, this is Jillian on Love, and I am on a mission to teach people how to transform their romantic relationships by first transforming the relationship they have with themselves. So whether you are in a relationship, you're single or heartbroken, I've got you covered. I'm Jillian Tarecki, certified relationship coach and teacher with over 20 years experience helping people transform their relationship with themselves through their bodies, breaths, and minds. I have now coached and taught thousands of people to become better versions of themselves and change the way they show up for and within their love lives. In today's episode, I welcome Dr. Nicole LaPera, otherwise known as the holistic psychologist. And many of you probably know her already. She is a social media sensation, and rightfully so. She has been on a mission to help people change their relationship with themselves and heal trauma. And in a way that isn't part of the usual psychology zeitgeist. And as a result, she has helped millions of people. And we have a very interesting conversation. We talk about what it means to actually love what it means to actually have trauma and why some people will experience trauma more acutely than someone else. We talk about her own personal history with healing her relationship with her mother and needing to enforce certain boundaries, but also really in the name and the service of love and how that was very difficult for her. We talk about our delusions about love, our delusions about ourselves. And I just think it's a very interesting conversation and one that I am quite sure that you are going to really enjoy. She drops a lot of important and illuminating pearls of wisdom. And I'm just excited for you all to listen. So without further ado, Dr. Nicole LaPera. Hello. Welcome, Dr. Nicole LaPera. I'm so excited to have you. Thanks for coming on the show. Of course. Thank you for having me and for the work that you do, Jillian. Thank you. You know, I was thinking about where I wanted to begin with this. And the most obvious place for me was relationships, because I would say that your work really is about relationships, whether it's about relationship with self, relationship with parents, relationships with lovers, relationships with siblings. And I'm curious to know what you believe is the biggest misconception about love. I love that question. And in a lot of ways, you're absolutely right. We are all in relation to someone or something. In my opinion, and actually in my lived experience after feeling for so long um, very disconnected from myself, from others, from the world around me. And, you know, as I dive into uh, more relational work in terms of really deconstructing my own conditioned patterns of how I did relate to all of the different types of relationships I've gathered 
over the course of my life. And I think that a lot of us have a lot of misconceptions about love. And one of the major ones being a lack of awareness of how love is, in my opinion, at least an embodied action state. It's not an overwhelming feeling. It doesn't come from anything outside of us. It really is something that is generated. I often like to talk about the body, our physiology. I generate it really from our heart and even just to wrap in my moments of disconnection. And really when we're disconnected from ourselves, often it's we're disconnected from our own ability to give and receive love. And another misconception obviously being that in, in those actions, sometimes it's, it's difficult moments as well. It's not just, I think, what traditionally we think of as the joy, the high, the roller coaster of this concept of falling in love. It's really the daily commitment to knowing ourselves and relating in a compassionate way and giving and receiving, again, that energetic exchange of love and compassion with the others around us. Yeah, I love that. I actually just did a thread post on, I love that you use the word generate because I used that word this morning. And I do think that when we are feeling most disconnected, it's usually because we've lost sight of the fact that, because I agree with you, that love is really a generated state. And I believe this to be the case regardless of who you're relating to. Like, it doesn't matter if it's family. It doesn't matter if it's a lover. It doesn't matter if it's a spouse, child. And I think that, you know, my work is primarily focused on romantic relationships. And the thing that I have had to really unlearn in myself, right, because it starts with that, is this idea that love is going to save the day, this idea that falling in love is actually love. I think we enter romantic relationships because we want to experience a magnification of emotion, of positive emotion. We want to feel. And when we are falling in love, it's like ecstatic, right? We're almost reminded of our true nature when we're falling in love. And where I find that, myself included, where people struggle the most is the transition that inevitably happens. Well, not inevitably, not everyone makes it to this point, but the transition from the falling in love stage of a relationship to the more committed stage of relationship. And that's usually where people start to panic. I think that's usually where people's attachment wounds start to get very highlighted because when we move towards the more committed stage of relationship, we relax a little bit. We remember that we're autonomous beings. We return to our lives a little bit. And then we think something is wrong. And that's I'm curious to know your thoughts. What I have seen is that that's where people screw up the most. That's where people sabotage the most. That's where people start to cling and start to play their little games the most because we're not taught, at least in this culture, to celebrate love as a daily practice versus this feeling. So... I'm curious how you have faced that within yourself and your own relationships and how 
you've helped others to kind of ease into that transition. I want to speak to, you know, that the honeymoon. I think a lot of us have heard that early stage with all of the, you know, actual physiological chemicals, again, that are released, the oxytocin, the dopamine, for a lot of us, the intensity of the feelings of building something new with someone and very much, you know, had a similar experience, you know, that feels attractive, alluring, especially for those of us who in childhood had stressful, overwhelming, more chaotic, more insecure upbringings. That's our familiar. And so very much having had that myself on the other side of that, when we reach, you know, that natural, like you're saying, and that crescendo ends and the crash happens and life goes more or less back to normal, not only are we then oftentimes I'll hear things like, well, I'm bored. I don't have the sparks. Maybe it's not the person that's meant for me and more so what we're then left with are our conditioned relational habits, which again began at a time and a place, you know, with our early caregivers. And oftentimes, you know, when we didn't have that safety and that security, you know, bringing up this idea of attachment patterns and to speak to your beautiful point earlier, many of us are seeking something. We're seeking someone to meet our needs. We're seeking a conflict-free relationship. We're seeking this idealized perfect person that we imagine is going to translate to us feeling, I'm imagining some version of connected, loved, cared for, and all of the things that, again, very few of us have had in our childhood. So sharing that to then say, now we've created a circumstance where we're looking, if I'm really going to simplify it, for feelings to happen, right, from someone doing or not doing something outside of us to translate to an internal experience that in reality, and I think this is another confusing aspect of love, that in reality, we're not familiar and very few of us have had the experience of that connection, of that empathetic attunement and compassionate, actual loving exchange of energy. And I'm, again, being very specific in that because I've come to realize that while we all need the safety and security of relationships and we're all energetic creatures, right, exchanging this information, when it is not our familiar as it wasn't for me while I had physically present caregivers, there was a lot of emotional disconnection and shutdown due to overwhelming emotions and a lack of awareness and skills transferred through generations in my home. So in a lot of ways, there was a emotional insecurity and a lack of that attunement with me and my mom in particular. So while we want that, right, not only are we looking from something from outside where it can't come from, there's an, an unfamiliarity and so a discomfort in even giving and receiving mm-hmm. love. And for many of us, even being first and foremost connected to ourselves, our physical bodies, again, where our you know emotions live, where our heart is that most energetically powerful, you know, organ in our in our whole system. So saying that to say, if being, you know, connected and grounded and authentic and being able to navigate our emotions and being in connection, closeness with someone else isn't our familiar, no matter how much we want that. And this is what I would find myself in, always seeking the perfect person to make me feel connected and cared for and loved. Yet in reality, not only was I seeking that in partners and creating relationships of disconnection because I myself was disconnected, I wasn't actually equipped to give an exchange that that love, that loving energy. So how did you learn? How did I learn? Um, learning, you know, for me really happened when I reached, um, as I wrote in my first book, 
How to Be the Love You Seek, though, at that time. I mean, How to Do the Work, <laughs> the first book. <laughs> I didn't, wouldn't have had any of this wording and this language. All I knew is my life wasn't feeling the way that I wanted it to feel. I wasn't feeling fulfilled. I wasn't feeling connected. While for as long as I can remember, I've been always in a romantic relationship, I didn't feel. I write in this new book, How to Be the Love You Seek, I write about literally the embodiment of feeling alone in a crowded room. So what I now understand looking back is what I was going through at that time was what I now understand to be my, my dark night of the soul, right? The crashing down of all of these conditioned ways of being that for me led to physical and emotional burnout, a lifetime of quite literal emotional disconnection. And for me, it was, you know, seeking to understand because at this point I was operating as a clinical psychologist, you know, tasked to help other people um, navigate their emotions and seeing a lot of the similar patterns, I should say, in those clients I was seeing, I saw it as a, you know, endless learner to understand, well, what's going on? Why am I continuing to see people who have self-awareness and are coming in in supportive environments and why can't we actually create change. And when I really then dove into the body and our subconscious mind and how powerful that is and how most of us are operating and for the context of relational conversations, most of our relational habits are literally wired into us and become so familiar. Then I began my own journey of kind of peeling back and creating space for myself because that was the major awareness is while I thought I was showing up in compassion, in service, right? In love with other people by constantly putting others first or being what I call a good person or so I thought, the reality of it was I was suppressing myself along the way, my wants, my needs, my thoughts, my perspectives, and absolutely my emotions. So it was a peeling of that and then a creation of space through all of the newness and all the discomfort that comes along with it, a lot of boundaries in place, for me to then come to realize that even in terms of a relationship to relate to another person really is a function of, well, how am I relating to me? And when my answer overwhelmingly was like, well, there is no me, um, I'm watering down, I'm suppressing, I'm censoring. Then I really came to the awareness that again, to give an exchange and be authentically connected to another person, we have to have that relationship with ourselves first. I agree a hundred percent. I also think that Part of the human experience is to struggle with our value in some way, uh, to struggle with our worth. And clearly not everyone struggles the same, but to question our enoughness. And I think that this sort of sickness, if you will, of that's so prominent at least in our culture, of being disconnected from ourselves and our true selves, comes from a place of fear of not being enough. And a lot of what drives that fear are some of the beliefs that we have about who we're supposed to be in order to get love, about who others should be in order for us to feel safe and loved. What would you say for you personally, and then I'll take it, you know, we'll transition the conversation away from you personally, but it's still interesting. What would you say for you personally was the biggest or most prominent belief that you had to challenge in order to gain greater access into yourself? This episode is brought to you by Masterclass. 
I love masterclass. I love that I am not really a cook. <laughs> I have taken some masterclasses on cooking and then have made literally the best eggs I've ever had in my life, literally better than you can get in a five-star restaurant. I'm not kidding. It's actually unbelievable. And I just think that what an incredible idea. Look, we grow as individuals when we learn. And to learn a new skill, especially a skill that you never thought was possible, you know, it just expands us in ways. It's growth. I mean, that's really what it's all about. And that's what Masterclass offers people, an opportunity to grow. And Masterclass makes a meaningful gift this season for you and anyone on your list because both of you can learn from the best to become the best, from leadership to effective communication to relationships, to cooking. So whether you're watching Masterclass on TV or you're listening in audio mode in the app or on their site, the quality truly does speak for itself. Memberships start at $120 a year for unlimited access to one-to-one classes with all 180 plus Masterclass instructors. So you can learn how to negotiate a raise with Chris Voss or manage your relationships with Esther Perel. So like I said, you know, there are over 180 classes to pick from with new classes, by the way, added every month, like cooking classes that, you know, I've taken and it's been nothing short of amazing. And it actually really boosts your confidence. And I don't know, it just feels really good to learn a new skill and to actually learn how to do something that you never thought you could do. So this holiday season, give one annual membership and get one free at masterclass.com slash J-O-L. Right now, you can get two memberships for the price of one at masterclass.com slash J-O-L. That's masterclass.com slash J-O-L. Offer terms apply. I want to just affirm in resonance your finding in terms of at our core, I do think universally very few of us feel enough and lovable. And I just want to say something quickly about that. Then I'll share my story throughout, which I love to speak from my own lived experience, obviously hoping that it it does resonate with some of you. So in childhood, lacking a safe, secure, and consistent caregiver who can be present to our emotional needs, to to our physical needs first and foremost, and to our emotional needs and our spiritual needs, right? Just creating space and curiosity for us to be who we are. In absence of that, and I've yet to meet for many different societal reasons, you know, um, passed throughout the centuries, access, information, and all that comes with it of no fault of our caregivers, very few of us have had that safety, that consistent safety and security. So sharing that to say in childhood, when our mind is always trying to make sense of the world around us and taking in all of the information, right, that's directly centered onto us, that's indirectly indicated how we feel in our relationships, when we don't have our needs consistently met and we're not able to because we don't have the maturity to zoom out as we do in adulthood, right? And see all of the contextual factors and understand that a caregiver isn't physically or emotionally present for you know, things outside of ourselves at all. We only are able to, in what's known as an egocentric point of view, the world revolves around us. We then assume that that lack of presence of attunement or whatever it is for anyone listening is a result of us. 
We are not worthy. We are not lovable enough for someone to want to be present to care for us in the ways that we need. And because we're in that developmental state of dependency, we're still developing. We need someone else to be in care of us to some extent. We will begin, like you're you're beautifully sharing, to modify how it is that we show up and how it is that we need others to show up so that we can maintain some sort of connection with that person. And then we continue to carry right, that very conditioned way of being. And I, I call these uh, conditioned cells in my new book because I believe they are a neurobiological embodiment. They're not just thoughts in our mind because actually, in my opinion, what a belief is, it's beyond that. It's not just practice thoughts that we've rehearsed or the same meanings that we've assigned, right? Mom or dad or whomever is not present because of me. They're actually grounded in our lived experience, those feelings, those embodied then actions, the ways we've coped and modified ourselves. And that's why they're so difficult to change. So mapping my story on and the biggest thing that I've come to be aware of. And I just want to say the reason then, right, we feel so separate back to this idea of threat, we are not in that safe, secure state. And our nervous system is indicating that to us. And whenever we're in a state of nervous system reactivity, which is what a lot of us are living in, we do fall into a separateness. We fall into this ego-based idea, right, of who we think we are and how we think we have to be. And anyone or anything around us that challenges that, right, we do then in our very evolutionarily driven nervous system state of reactivity, we remove the possibility of connection, right? It becomes us first them. I'm right, you're wrong. And we do lose connection to that wholeness or the ability to be with, to be in compassionate presence with someone else. So for me, again, an absence of having my emotional needs met, the language and the belief that's been embedded in, in my subconscious for so long, living in my body, becoming the filter through which I you know, view all of my relational experiences in particular, is this idea of I'm not considered. Why? Because at my core, something about me is unworthy. And unless I continue to show up as this good person, right? Mm -hmm. Putting you above me, being the perfect friend, partner, sister, daughter, whomever, right? You won't love all of me unless I'm performing in some service-based way, right? Mm -hmm. That there isn't love. And I continue to see even in real time now remnants, because this is, again, they're, they're wired into us of that old belief, you know, when things happen or don't happen and in any of my relationships, my instinctual thought or filter is, oh, well, this is yet another indicator of how this person doesn't consider me. Again, why? Because of something inherent about me. Yes. Well said. So perfectionism has plagued you. It plagues a lot of people in this society, a lot, myself included. I think that it can become difficult being in the space that you're in, social media, you've dedicated your life to service, right? So it's this really interesting paradox, I guess, where the belief is I have to be of service in some way in order to be needed, validated, valued, and yet you were born for service. So it must be something that you have to... I don't know, be mindful of that it doesn't become, yeah. I know it's like for me, it's like, so that it doesn't become about achievement 
or me, even though that could be there, to always root yourself in love, basically, that the service is really to help others, not to just try to be enough. Because if it's not going to show up in romantic relationships, it'll show up in work. It'll show up in career. It'll show up in money. Switching gears a little bit, a similar question, but around something different. What do you believe is one of the biggest or the biggest misconceptions about trauma? Trauma. And again, I write a lot about this in in my first book. And I subscribed for a long time to this concept definition that very much reflected some groundbreaking research in the 90s, the ACEs scale, with this idea, right, that trauma is a thing that happens. And if the thing passes a certain threshold, usually, you know, it's grouped in there, instances of of abuse, neglect. Um, When we can check the boxes that those things happened for a very long time, then we would, you know, say that, okay, I've experienced trauma. And, And for a long time, having worked with individuals who scored very high in different settings, inpatient, outpatient, previously incarcerated, scoring very high in this ACEs scale, I was always confused at why I would see similar coping habits, similar relational struggles in myself because I didn't have the language. And I tried not being able to recall much of my childhood. I tried on for size. Well, maybe the reason I can't recall these things is because there was that big thing that happened. And You know, in absence of that being the case for me, what I've come to understand is, especially for the purpose of this conversation in terms of relationships, there's a whole world of relational trauma around our emotional needs. And for me, really having then the language to say, yes, your physical needs were were consistently met in childhood. Nicole, though, emotionally, there was a lot of emotional neglect and that can cause that same experience of trauma in the body because trauma isn't actually a function of the thing that happened. It's actually our ability to tolerate and to navigate the overwhelming experience emotionally of anything really that's happening to us. So now with this wider definition, and I think this is why so many of us are coming to the awareness that a lot of the reason that we're stuck in the way that we are is because of those overwhelming feelings in childhood that we were under supported. And again, just to tie this into relationships, we are incredibly adaptive, right? We will, like I was sharing earlier, figure out a way to survive the circumstances and the relationships and the lack of emotional support that was present or absent for us in childhood. And that is typically then when we up to relationships, that is typically then why so many of us are stuck. What was once our safest adaptation, the way that we had to maintain those connections that we depended on for life now becomes the continued way that we're not actually meeting our needs or tending to our emotions in a, in a safe, in a ground, and in a way that's functional for our relationships around us. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. The holidays can be hard for a lot of people and also just the end of the year season can bring up a lot of anxiety and you know sometimes people struggle with a lot of seasonal blues it just can be a lot for people and it's really natural to feel some sadness some anxiety and you know therapy can be that grounding bright force <laughs> 
amid all the, the stress that you might be feeling and the change. It also gives you the tools to manage everything going on and to cope better and to have better communication. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. First of all, it's entirely online. So it's designed to be convenient. It's designed to be flexible and suited to your schedule, which is great. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge, which for me is amazing because sometimes it takes a little time to find the right therapist for you. It's a relationship just like any other relationship. And so having that rapport is so important. And the fact that you can switch a therapist at any time for no charge is just wonderful. So find your bright spot this season with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash on love today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash on love. Gabor Mate says trauma is not what happens to you, what happens inside of you. Do you think that a person's nervous system, so for example, I've studied yoga and the practice of yoga for many years, over 20 years, and I used to teach it. And one of the sister sciences of yoga is Ayurveda. In Ayurvedic medicine, there is these doshas vata, pitta, kapha, that describe the neurophysiology of a person. And there's usually a combination. Usually when a person has a dominant dosha, but all three are kind of in there, but with different percentages. And there are, vata in particular is, is a dosha in which the nervous system is most fragile, I would say. And I wonder if one's nervous system being fragile versus not being as fragile based solely on their physiology, how they were born, makes them more susceptible to experiencing trauma and not from, you know, not from some big, widely recognized traumatic event, but literally feeling trauma or that trauma living inside their nervous system, whereas someone else, perhaps with a more robust nervous system, not quite so sensitive, wouldn't actually experience that as trauma. Do you believe that there is a nervous system component to this? 100%. I believe that is the distinction, right, between different individuals who can live the same experience and have it, you know, registered, navigate it differently, though, and this is an important part. Um, and now this is grounded in the science of epigenetics. You know, for a very long time, we thought that our genetics, the DNA coded, was the only thing, right, that contributed to these expressions, again, for the purpose of this conversation, our sensitivity, for lack of a better word, of our nervous system or its robustness. To complicate things, we now know that genetics are playing a role Though what is also playing a role is our environment. So the sensitivity or robustness of our nervous system is actually a function beyond just the fact that we're genetically related to individuals and then right born with this constitution or not. It's actually a function of the state of the nervous system of, I mean, first and foremost, the human body, right, that carried us. 
And I saw this very present just quickly. My mother, who was chronically ill, had a lot of chronic pain, was, again, I believe that to be a function of her childhood trauma, her inability to regulate her emotions, which of course then translated to, as I was sharing earlier, her own ability to be attuned to me. She was also at an advanced age when, at the time, which we thought was an advanced age, she was 42 and she had me 15 years after having my sister who also had chronic health issues. So sharing that to say, now, in my opinion, from the moment of conception, where actually as shared with me at her funeral two years ago, my one of my aunts shared a quick story about how when my mom was having what would have been mourning symptoms, sickness, did not know that was the case, shared with my aunt her concern that it was likely stomach cancer and was looking to her for advice of what to do. And long story short, after going to the doctor to seemingly get this diagnosis of stomach cancer, my mom comes to find out she's pregnant with me. So sharing that to say all of the while, I'm developing my nervous system in particular, the first thing that develops when we are, you know, conceived. So again, she was so dysregulated with so much cortisol running through her for very understandable reasons. Because she thought right? she had stomach cancer. In addition to her own inability of just right. being traumatically overwhelmed from her own childhood and dealing with everything that All was happening. It. And the fact that she then thought she had stomach cancer, which again, just if, for those of you who heard me mention earlier that I struggled to recall, to kind of tell the story of my childhood, to call it to mind, like mm -hmm. some of us can, I've come to realize that for a very long time, I thought that was, again, genetically something wrong with my memory, you know, must be this, you know, a brain actually lesion or issue that I would be diagnosed with later all in my family constellation of health-based anxiety came to learn that when our brain is developing and there is high levels of cortisol, that is exactly what happens because high levels of cortisol impact the part of our brain, the hippocampus, which actually facilitates or one of the parts of our brain that facilitates memory and memory recall. So again, sharing that to say and going back to your question, yes, our nervous system is absolutely going to determine our ability to be resilient to stress, right? That more sensitive versus the robustness, the language we were using earlier, though it's confusing because if I look to all of my family, we're all anxious, we're all doing the same things, right? We're all reacting in the same ways, yet it's not just a matter of the fact that we're genetically similar. It really is that neurobiological imprint. And then obviously once we're born, now we need this other nervous system to co-regulate with. And when they're not safe, now we continue to have all of these stress signals sent to our bodies. And before we know it, we are then kind of differentiating ourselves in terms of my nervous system can't take this. And then we kind of continue to adapt in whatever way we need to. Hmm. It can be quite, it's not that it's easy, but easier to speak to a person, work with a person, look at a person and see what it is that they're struggling with for some diagnose. It's a lot harder to influence someone to change. And, you know, I'm a child of a who was once a very well-known psychiatrist. I was in therapy when I was younger. And one of my problems with therapy was that it didn't help me change. There would be a, a diagnosis. I was never diagnosed with anything. But, you know, my father certainly diagnosed a lot of people being a psychiatrist. But how do you get a person to change? And now that I have been working for the last... 20 years one-on-one -on -one with people, 20 years with their bodies, and then for 10 years with their relationships and their families. And the biggest high I get 
is when I can influence someone to change because it is so incredibly difficult. And obviously some people are swift changers and some people are very slow. Everyone has their own process. What do you think is the biggest needle mover? What do people need to know and understand about change? I mean, what I'll tell you that I've seen and recognized in myself is that usually we are most motivated by pain. So the rock bottom will definitely more times than not inspire someone to change. How do we change before we hit that bottom? So just quickly going back to self-awareness, a byproduct, I think oftentimes of therapy, even maybe categorization, whether we want to call it diagnosis or what have you. I think for a lot of us, you know, there can be relief in that. We have a name, we have an understanding, right, for what's happening. Maybe, you know, we have that attunement where the therapist or whatever helping professional is, right, seeing things from our perspective. For some of us, first time ever yes. that that's happened, right? And we have new language even and intentionally focusing on that because I will always break the practice of change into two steps as I simplify things quite often. First step being, right, gaining that awareness, gaining that information, having that language. And again, for some of us, those categorizations and all that comes with it, that self-understanding is, an, is the first step of it. And can be very, very important when you've been living your very life important. chronically lost and questioning. Right. We have an understanding. We have something to kind of, you know, kind of utilize. And we might even have now a group to support us, right. others who were going through that, right? We were describing us as needing others just a few minutes ago. So what I similarly came to see um, being several years into my private practice where I would operate on what I would kind of think of or describe as, you know, a, a mindfulness-based approach with this idea of, you know, psychodynamically trained, you know, understanding childhood influence, but really wanting to give people, mindfulness being the tool, consciousness really, a tool, right, to do something. Because I was intuitively, like obviously people in my office want more than understanding too. They want to go resolve the symptoms, heal the relationship pattern or what have you, whatever it is that brought them in. And what I came to find is not only was I struggling to actually create and maintain change in my own life, having been on the other side of the couch myself and group therapy and psychoanalytic training, right? Beginning to see areas I could change. I saw the same pattern and frustration in many of my clients. So when I sought to understand, okay, well, why do we struggle and why is it so incredibly frustrating for those of us who have all of this insight and understanding to actually build that bridge into action? And again, understanding the body um, is where I really gained the clarity because we're not wired, our nervous system at least, to want to change. We prefer the fami familiar, the predictability of it, the sense of safety in it, the control that we get, that we know that we do this thing next when that happens because it's all I've ever done. And anytime I'm going to now step outside and make new choices, that second step, right? I become aware of new things. I see myself in a new way. I have access to new tools. Now I go use them. Now I'm faced with venturing into the unknown. And for all of us, that's going to create what I kind of define as that resistance, right? The discomfort in my body, connecting with my body, maybe in a new way, or all of the thoughts that are telling me this isn't worth it and, you know, stop doing this. And before I know it, I'm, I'm right back. So really, again, understanding that why change is so hard can be so relieving for some of us 
because it gives us new language outside of, well, I'm broken, I don't deserve this change or whatever it is that we're making current sense of it. And it also now gives us some new choices that we can make. Not only can we begin to create new habits, not diving into the deep end of overhauling our life. Oftentimes it does though, understandably, like you're sharing, happen at a time where we're suffering to some deep extent that we can't imagine, right, life to continue. Though whatever the pathway to change is, understandable, right, if if I'm uncomfortable, the quicker I do new things, the quicker I'll get better. Mm -hmm. However, the quicker I do new things, the more I'm going outside of my comfort zone, right? So there's value in staying committed to those small daily promises, which then brings me to the most important person on this journey, even outside of the helping professional that might be supporting you on the journey is you, right? We, I would sit there with clients when I shifted my practice working holistically, right? We would talk about all these new tools and give them action plans. And then session wouldn't happen for several days, several weeks, right? And who is the person now showing up day in and day out with all of those subconscious habits and all of that resistance wired into them? So to change, again, it's really the practice of empowering ourselves through those small daily promises. The first foundational, I think, and most empowering promise to make is to just be a conscious participant, right? Shifting from that blind autopilot that's driving all of our reactions and just beginning to be a grounded presence, noticing all of the filtered thoughts, noticing all the dysregulation in our body so that over time we can actually empower ourselves to from that state now of awareness, make those new choices and sustain those new choices. But again, similar to when we're in that deep rut of suffering, it's so you know desirous to change so quickly so I get better. It's also really natural to want the world to change around me, to control. If you just stop, especially when we're talking about relationships or if you just start, whatever it is, then I can feel better. Though again, this goes back to the first question in a lot of ways right around, we're conditionally trying to be or seek someone else to be something that's grounded, again, not in safety, not in security. So the most empowered place, and I have a whole chapter called Relationship Empowerment in the new book, is being in that grounded state of presence um, where we can drop into ourselves and begin to actualize new choices, taking the power back right, from the world around us that we're relying on so that we feel some way and actually creating that space to connect with our heart and the love that's ever present so that we can actually be that love. Yeah, that's well said. And also just recognizing, like to speak to your point, how much of it's a habit, like for example, seeing the glass half empty, I think is very much an inherited habit, usually from a parent. And once you recognize with that awareness that part of your suffering is because you're seeing everything. You're seeing the glass half empty. That is a pattern that you learned from a parent, likely. And that, you know, it takes work. It takes diligence. I think discipline is a big part of it. I think that's something that also people don't like to hear. But I think discipline is very important. I mean, I remember when I started my journey of bringing mindfulness to the way that I spoke to myself. It took discipline to interrupt those patterns and to be like, no, 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 no. I'm not going to say that to myself and to speak more kindly to myself. I think what's amazing about humans is that we do have very strong will. And even though 
very unpopular opinion that you can't use just willpower. Like willpower is not enough. I do think that there's some value to will. Like when you really feel, I think that also when you start to make change and you start to see even just a glimmer that something is changing, that creates tremendous momentum. And then your will starts to like expand inside of you. And when the will expands, we can do some pretty amazing things and create some incredible, incredible shifts. It takes discipline. It takes help. And also it takes love and support. I really don't believe that we are designed to heal alone. I think we, we co-regulate with others. This episode is brought to you by Rocket Money. Do you have any subscriptions that you have forgotten about? Because I would bet money that you do, because I know I have had many, or any that you paid twice for and didn't realize it. Because Rocket Money can cancel subscription for you, you know, because sometimes it can be kind of tricky or time consuming, and then you have to remember and you have to go through it. And, you know, it's a pain. And we are always throwing away money at things that we're not using. And that, really sucks, honestly. So if you do struggle to save money every month with Rocket Money, you can quickly identify all of those sneaky subscriptions (laughs) that keep charging you month after month. Even if it's just a couple of bucks a month, it does add up. And they cancel any you no longer use. It's such an easy way to start saving money and to stop wasting money. Did you know that over 80% of people have subscriptions they've forgotten about. Like I said, it's just too easy to subscribe to a free trial of something and then completely forget about once you stop using it. And right as the monthly charges start rolling in is usually when we forget about it. And that's why I'm such a big fan of Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills all in one place. With over 5 million users and counting, Rocket Money has helped save its customers an average of $720 a year and $1 billion in total savings so far. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions and manage your money the easy way by going to rocketmoney.com slash onlove. That's rocketmoney.com slash onlove rocketmoney.com slash on love. What I've been seeing a lot lately, and I'm very curious to hear your thoughts, and I was so looking forward to having this conversation with you, mostly because of this, or partly I should say because of this. In the current zeitgeist, which you play a tremendous role in, in other words, you have so much influence, so you see it. There is, it's almost like watching the development of a child and watching someone like build awareness, it's like, okay, I have the awareness now that some of the things that I suffer from is because of some generational trauma or something that happened with mom or something that happened with dad. What I'm seeing a little bit more than what makes me personally feel comfortable just because before I started with romantic relationships, I thought that I wanted to work solely with families. And that is, I'm seeing a lot more estrangement. Where do we strike the balance between learning how to have boundaries with particular family members that are absolutely essential for us to reclaim our sense of self 
and emotional safety and autonomy. Where do we draw the line between that and estrangement? Because clearly estrangement is necessary for certain dire circumstances, right? But at the end of the day, excluding dire circumstances such as extreme abuse, at the end of the day, isn't it better to try to encourage people to heal their familial relationships? And I'm just curious to know your thoughts on that and where one begins if they are in a position, like someone listening today, and they're in a position where they know they they haven't had many boundaries with their certain family members, and they are learning how to enforce boundaries. What would you say to that person who's in that position? Yeah, what would you tell them while wanting to encourage them to also heal whatever that family relationship is? Maybe the boundary is in service of that healing. So, you know, I think what kind of we're talking about is how do we, you know, boundaries, right? A point of separation, even just to use my description in the language I was using earlier, right? That space to be me, be a me in a relationship um, with whomever, with a partner, with family, obviously family of origin. We have a lot of embedded um, relationship dynamics and roles. And so how do I create space for an individual in a relationship? That's what true interdependence is. Um, where we can honor everyone's uniqueness in their self-expression and their wants and their needs and still have that point of connection. And saying that to then say, um, I got to the point of my journey coming from a very enmeshed, codependent family of origin, um, where I was at that time living in the same city. So a lot of points of access where, you know, very typical to my family's long history of lots of chronic, consistent health issues, I did come to the realization that after much time spent, you know, trying to create that space, stand in my new boundaries in service of myself and being met with different levels of, you know, reactivity, of upset, of requirement, of guilt, of all of the things. Resistance. um, (laughs) Of resistance. There you go. Oh, that resist, right? Because that's exactly what that is. And that's a beautiful, I mean, thank you, Jillian, for offering that here because that we can understand maybe why it's so difficult to shift our dynamic in families because there's been such a familiarized role, even a system for some of us, right? With each us doing our parts for so long. And now, right, just to use myself as an example, here's Nicole starting to carve out space, not be as present, whether it was for family dinner or the weekly doctor's appointment, whatever it was had been. And of course, none of this was emergent. It was just the family's history. Mm-hmm. Nicole was being less present to join in shared worry because she was now coming to the awareness of the toll stress has taken. So after, you know, trying, so I think part of the answer is yes, absolutely. When we become aware that there are boundaries in absence and we need to create new ones or modify them, whatever it is, attempting, not by pointing the finger of, you know, demand or ultimatum. And I do think a lot of us confuse what boundaries are, pointing the finger right back to, well, what will I do assuming this continues? And so for me, after, you know, several months of trying to carve out space and my decision that I did make for myself was to for lack of a better, estrange or to separate 
to give myself the time and space to continue to work on reconnecting. I was in the cocoon stage. I wasn't really interacting with much. I was really turning inward and did communicate that then to my family, letting them know that I did need some space and was going to take the space that I needed. And I would not know how long, you know, that that would be, though, with the intention being hoping for, to speak to your point, that me becoming more grounded in, in myself, in my own needs, when then, you know, we were able to, if they were open, reconnect and resume the relationship, that it would be one that was far healthier for all of us. And very thankfully, I think around 18 months after um, I started to, you know, get that pain, be interested in what was going on. And that's not to say there wasn't a, a lot of guilt. <laughs> you know, it was so difficult for me to even, you know, make that or statement because I wouldn't even say it was a request. I was, again, affirming this is what I'm doing and what I need and very well aware that they might not be open and receptive on the other side of it. But again, really wanting to honor my space. So after trying, and I think that is absolutely the first action point is we become aware of ways we need to change our dynamic with our family, right? We keep the focus on us. Well, what am I going to do different? Assuming this family system is going to be what it is, walking through all that discomfort, sometimes even the reaction that you fear that's kept you in those old roles. And I do think for some of us then, you know, for many different reasons, the choice might be to step away for some period of time, though I kept myself connected enough, right, that I did want and always will want a relationship with my family. I just want one that's healthier for all of us. And very gratefully on the other side of that, we actually reconnected in several family therapy sessions. They had all been in family therapy and their own individual therapy. And since then, you know, the relationship dynamics, not only in my individual relationships with my individual family members and the family, they're shifting in all of their relationships as well. So on the other side, sometimes of periods of separation. And I think, again, what what is helpful is not having an all or nothing mentality, right? I wasn't like, I'm done. All of the while I was connected to my desire, as all of us have, like we're continuing to say, we need relationships. And of course, many of us want relationships with our family of origin. The decision to step away from my family was probably the hardest decision, I'm having chills, so it's affirming, I've ever made in my entire life. It wasn't something that I did glibly. I was like, oh, F you, I'm just going to go. No, <laughs> I wouldn't have had, no, I didn't think Absolutely. so. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, I was heartbroken because yeah. I didn't want that in my heart. Yeah. Yet there was, again, part of my heart that did know that I did need to change something and I did need to create this space for that. So the more we, again, stay attuned, we don't give those proclamations that, you know, you, you and I didn't do it. I guess this is another thing I could offer to answer the question more specifically. It wasn't done in a moment of reactivity. There wasn't a fight or a conflict or That's it was so a key. gradual, right, awareness. And that is so key. Because how we feel, and even to this day, what I say when I'm really in a reactive moment is not what I mean. No. You know, so the more grounded we can be and the more time we can take, I mean, even the way I described it, it was time of awareness and boundary setting and awareness and, and boundary setting and, a, and, yeah. and reflection and yeah. a labor decision and not a, you know, all or nothing proclamation. Mm -hmm. um, again, it was an evolving. So outside of, you know, the final straw where we're screaming and yelling and then we hit block and we're done with them, which I don't think maybe is the best for our relationships. If it's done in an intentional and a grounded way 
And it was not only for my own best interest, for my family, who I continued to see embed it in those codependent dynamics and relying on me for things that were overstepping and were putting them all in, in my opinion, a much more powerless place. And thankfully, in my circumstances, at least, the byproduct of it has been so much healthier relationship dynamics and so much more mutual respect, actually, from all of us moving forward. That's beautiful. This episode is sponsored by Dose. Dose is an expertly formulated organic wellness shot that supports your liver in one delicious drink. And we live in a very toxic world and taking care of our liver, especially as we get older, is super important. I found it to be a game changer for me in terms of balancing hormones and just better sleep. Some things to know about Dose. There's zero sugar. It's organic. It's non-GMO. It doesn't have any calories. It has sustainable packaging. And there's free shipping on all orders. So that's pretty amazing. So I will say... I really like the taste. It's got curcumin. I always have a hard time pronouncing that, which is basically a turmeric extract. It's got milk thistle. It's got ginger. It's got dandelion root and it has orange. So I really like it. It's got a little bit of a kick and it's delicious. How do I incorporate it into my daily wellness routine? I just take a shot every day. Sometimes do it in the morning. Sometimes I do it in the afternoon. Sometimes I do it in the afternoon because it gives me a little bit of energy. And that's the thing. Since I've been doing it, it does give me energy. It actually clears my sinuses. It actually helps with digestion. It just makes me feel better. So unlike other wellness shots, Dose does not contain standard juices or powders. It's gluten and dairy-free and it's got zero sugar. If you want to give Dose a shot and invest in your health, Dose is offering Jillian and on Love listeners 15% off your first order, plus an additional 15% off if you subscribe for a monthly delivery. That's 30% off your first order. Go to dosedaily.co slash Jillian and use code Jillian. That's dosedaily.co slash Jillian and use code Jillian. You mentioned something about making a decision And I want to get to exiting relationships, ending relationships. But before I do, I question your mom passed a couple of years ago. Sorry for your loss. Two years. Has your relationship with her shifted since her passing? Was there a reconciliation of sorts that happened for you because of her passing? That's a really, really great question. For me and my mom, as I was really becoming aware of our, you know, again, for lack of better, our lack of that emotional attunement, emotional connection began when actually she was still here. So for me, accepting my mom for who she is, for her conditioned protective way of being, because that wasn't, in my opinion, who my mom was at her core. It was born out of, again, her pain that began even before my family, from her Mm -hmm. own childhood, from what I know of it allowing myself that acceptance and that compassion and also my own ability to grieve what I didn't have um, allowed me then to create that compassionate and empathetic space for her. 
So while my relationship in action looked much like it did throughout the course of my mom's life with, you know, a distance, we would connect over certain things. We like to cook and talk about food and, you know, sports and things like that. On the surface, it had always kind of looked similarly, though the shift again started to happen before she passed. And it was a shift that was much more kind of emotional for me. And since she's passed, I would say that there has been a continued ability to connect with the whole of her that I do believe is still, you know, ever present than was, you know, maybe fully available when she was stuck in a, such a conditioned yes. way of her being. Yes. I lost my mom nine years ago and we were very close. I mean, we had our, you know the usual mother-daughter bullshit that happens, but it was a good relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my troubled relationship was always with my father, but I was very dependent on her for my sense of certainty and security. I think it was because my father was emotionally absent and I was the most sensitive of the children So I was very, very sensitive and reactive as a baby, as a child. So I sensed his darkness, I think, as an infant. And I was very reactive to that, protective of myself. And my mom was very present with me. So I latched onto her, right? It was like the anxious attachment that I found myself with in and out, in and out. And I've healed pretty much most of that honestly, but the anxious attachment that I would find myself confronted with in my romantic relationships as I got older, I realized was because of this, it's like almost the needing mom to rescue me or to save me or to protect me, I should say, from dad. And it's just, I don't know, I asked about the passing of your mom because everyone's going to, well, not, we don't know, but The way life should be, I think, is that parents pass before their children. That doesn't always happen. But if we're lucky, that's the way it goes. But the passing, I think for people who are listening, who are struggling with a parent, this idea of making some sort of peace with them before they pass, I think is really important. Again, that might be a peace that happens internally because to be around them is actually unsafe, but some sort of peace because it can be very complicated when your parent dies and it can be incredibly complicated when you've had a complicated relationship with them and they die and you've never kind of reached some sort of, if possible, peace with them or peace within yourself about them. So that's, that's why I ask. And I think that for everyone listening, I think that It's so, so important because it's very impactful. No one kind of, no one really prepares you for that, but it's very impactful. Um, Exiting relationships, often done in a reactive state, which then creates a lot of harm, not only for the person who's exiting the relationship, but clearly also for the person who's being left. And... I swear the question I probably get the most is, how do you know when it's time to leave a relationship? And what you shared earlier about your process of 
coming to a place where you made a decision about how you were going to change the way you related to the members of your family and that that wasn't just a decision that you just made in reaction, but it was a very long decision that came with a lot of self-awareness and self-reflection. I think that ending romantic relationships, what we need to encourage people to do is that if you are going to end a relationship that is meaningful to you and isn't abusive or anything like that, that you really take the time to self-reflect. And I think that one of the things that people need to reflect on, that they are resistant to, bringing back that word, (laughs) is their own role in whatever did not work. And I tell people, if you can honestly reflect on that, and you still feel that it's time to end the relationship versus work on it, hire a therapist, whatever, then okay. And I was wondering what you thought about that and if you had anything to add. Yeah, I want to speak to the the reactivity you know, piece um, because, and I see this in my own reactive patterning, some of us seek to flee, state to flee, flee, ghost, shut down block out of protection. And again, speaking from one of the ways that my mom dealt with upset, disappointment, and anger in particular was to remove herself. Statements like, you'll miss me when I'm gone, moments like silent treatments that could go on at at its worst for the better part of a month or two. So for me, as painful as those moments were, right, of absence, I will be the first to admit in my mind's eye, sometimes spoken out of my mouth, in moments where I'm not feeling, bringing this full circle, right? Safe, considered, connected, all of the things, again, that are more mine than anyone else's. I can be known to think and sometimes say really hurtful relationship-ending sounding things Hmm. to those that I love the most. Not because I mean it in my heart, But because for me, that's a learned form of protection. I'm not feeling safe here. I got to go. And so to speak to the point then of knowing, I know this about myself, right? I, again, work now not to make and say those hurtful things that could absolutely cause insecurity in my closest relationships, you know, making sure like you're describing that there's time spent. It's not shouted in a moment of upset. Because again, for a lot of us, that's our old way. We've protected ourselves. That it's actually something that's been carefully considered with these moments of exploration. And actually the first chapter of the new book is really about just what we're speaking about now, that we are a participant, a creator in all of our relationship dynamics. So in that time spent of, you know, self-evaluation, self-reflection, relationship evaluation and reflection, really taking the time to not only look within and identify, also possibly, especially if it is a long-term relationship, one that we were committed to or want to remain committed to, or, you know, if possible, conversation then as well. We can then have active conversations about the realizations we're having, right? The parts both are playing, 
And the shifts that, you know, each of us as individuals can dedicate to making to try to make the relationship more sustainable into the future. Lots of people are opting to be single. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think that's a good thing? Because you're married. And so my thinking is that romantic relationships are extremely powerful. They can really give us wings when they're good. And they can clip our wings right off when they're not. And so I believe in the power of relationship and that we can feel a lot more supported in life when we have a relationship. But more and more people are consciously choosing to be single. And I find it interesting because I would love to one day look at the data to see if they're actually healthier (laughs) or not healthier, happier, you know? And I think that, you know, obviously I think the people who are choosing to be single, a lot of times they've had a lot of painful relationships and they think, why bother? It's just going to add stress to my life. And I'm sure it'll swing back, but it does seem like the pendulum is swinging a little bit towards the direction of people choosing to be single and not just choosing to be single because they have work to do on themselves, but like really indefinitely choosing to be single. And I'm curious to know your thoughts about that or if you've seen that. Is that something that you've noticed? Yeah, to speak to the point that um, there's much more talk of, you know, just that choice and in action, the celebration of that choice. And we actually tie this to the boundary, you know, and estrangement conversation a bit, because I do think, again, A, even back to this moment of reactivity, right? Why is it that we're choosing to be single? Like you're sharing, Jillian, is it because I'm so hurt? This is the last time I'm going to let this happen. Or maybe all of my relationships have hurt me. So why would I ever right, put myself in that scenario again? So I would define all of that, like we were just speaking of, as moments of protective reactivity. And bringing back in even the concept of boundaries, I think it's natural and nothing that to shame ourselves with that sometimes there is an overcompensation, right? Like I was sharing, I came from codependence. There could be, you know, a really, while that wasn't necessarily the case with my family, you know, there could be a really rigidness, a wall, right, mm-hmm. that we put up. And that was the case, you know, I, I cocooned myself. It was very slowly in my creeping out to make myself more and more available emotionally. So there can similarly be in terms of from a hurt place or even from a necessary place. Oh, I I need to rediscover myself. So now I make a global proclamation, right, to another extreme. I will never Mm -hmm. be in a relationship again. So I think that's normal and to be understood, you know, it's just an overcompensation. This thing didn't work. So I need to find my way to a more flexible middle. Ultimately, though, if you still are someone who, for whatever reason, you know, a more traditional romantic type of relationship isn't in alignment with what your heart and soul are saying, it doesn't, in my opinion, translate to that you are an absence of relationship. I think that there are many deeply supportive, I actually put out content a lot around, you know, friendships Mm -hmm. and how emotionally supportive and incredibly fulfilling, authentic, deeply connected friendships can be and and all types of relationships. I think that there's room for, and I think a lot of us do ourselves a disservice when we, as I kind of think of it and talk about it, when we categorize like, well, this is what friends do and the role friends play and all friends therefore are the same if you're in the category of friends and this is right romantic relationship. And that's not the case. If we can pull back and 
really develop individual relationships with different type of friends and different type of romantic partners or different types of supportive relationships if we are someone who doesn't resonate or align with a more romantic in the traditional sense partner or maybe we want partners, whatever it is. I think the more comfortable we get again, I think this is a byline through our whole conversation here, dropping into us and what it is that we individually want and need and making space for the unique expression that is each of us as individuals, then I think that we can still create a scenario where we might not be checking the box of traditional marriage as I am not. So just to share, yes, I am married and we've recently within past two years added a third and now we are three of us in a committed relationship. Never in a million years would I've had the language to know this is possible? Was my heart kind of telling me that this was what I wanted or needed until, of course, I began to drop in? Of course, this is not me suggesting that this is for everyone, but mm-hmm. the byproduct of you know this journey is not only does my now core relationship look a little different than the more traditional, my friendships as well have started to develop a depth that they feel equally supportive as my romantic partners offer me. Yeah, I think that that's, um, I think that's wonderful. And I think that that's so important because I work with a lot of women who really struggle with their self-esteem and that's a whole other conversation. That's a whole other podcast episode, I think. But one of the byproducts of that is wanting to partner with those who are just, to be honest, terrible for them or not interested or unavailable. And they keep getting their hearts broken. And one of the things that has been very useful, and it's even been useful in my own life, is taking this full circle to what is love. Of course, romantic love is different, right? It has, it, it's sexual, it's erotic, it has, it's just different. But if you can, for for the listeners who are feeling sort of discouraged that they haven't found their person or they feel like they've been rejected a lot or they're questioning their worth and they're sitting around wanting to be chosen or they're in this very now popular term, which I happen to love because I think it describes it perfectly, but situationship, you know, (laughs) it's one of those pop psychology words that I actually am totally into. (laughs) Full support. Even though the love of friendship, pet, community is not the same, magnifying love in your life is very important. And finding community in your life is very important. And it does support you and it does raise your self-esteem to be able to see yourself through the eyes of friends and community does actually strengthen your sense of self. And I think that for anyone who's really just out there struggling and feeling down about being single and there's no one and there's no one out there and the current dating world, you know, whatever their belief system is and all those heavy beliefs, some are true, some are not, that they start investing in love in other ways. I just wanted to say that based on what you said, it's just, it's a beautiful thing that as you start to, and I think it also comes with age, you kind of learn to deepen certain friendships and relationships and it's incredibly rewarding and it's just only good can happen from that I think just want to add here because again I think I mentioned earlier that even the creation of the account self healers um the 
holistic psychologist account and the choice to have a hashtag uh, self healers and begin to use it really was born out of that desire for me to, you know, open my support system and be more authentic in all relationships beyond my romantic partner, Lolly. And so saying that to say, very interestingly, and I could not agree more, right? My commitment, while I did have the romantic partner, so I know it's not exactly the same, but I do want to share because it does, in my opinion, at least connect here. My commitment to being authentically me, connected to my heart, sharing my story as it were, the connection of now my, the current partner, Jenna, the third, um, is actually someone that was within that community, and started to relate just virtually over similar aspects of journey, you know, following each other. She just became a handle that I was very familiar with. And then flash forward when the circle um, was, again, based on community, hearing and many more individuals from around the world who were looking for something a little more private away, a little more deep dive into some topics. The circle was born. No brainer than when we needed support, Lolly and I running the circle. It was, you know, Jenna actually gave a, a a DM and was like, hey, I I see what you're doing. I'm I'm aligned. And that was already affirmed from what I knew to be of Jenna. And long story short, she joined the team. We started just operating the business together, ended up living in Venice Beach together, you know, within walking distance, spending time together. So sharing the story to say, in my opinion, right, it was my authentic alignment to myself and my own creation of self-compassion and self-love that actually attracted a relationship that over time would evolve into mm-hmm. a romantic partnership, a beautiful complementary, not only romantic partnership, but professional partnership that again, really wasn't because I was looking at all. It was really just based on that point of attraction that I was just so committed to being me that that is inevitably the byproduct of what has happened. So I think it somewhat applies to this idea, Absolutely. right? If we stay committed, you know, even if in absence of having that romantic partner currently, that is what happens. We do develop and find our way toward our people. Yes. Um, and people that eventually might be that person for us or persons, Absolutely. depending on who you are. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And also being open to building a friendship with someone first. The spark is very overrated and it can build. I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that's a great story. So I want to thank you just for your consistent and persistent contribution to the world and what you're doing to help people, really to empower people to understand that change begins within and that they do have the power to change regardless of their circumstances. And so I want to thank you for that and also ask you if there's anything else that you want to share before we part. Thank you. Um, I will receive that appreciation and appreciate you for for really seeing um, what what I'm about, what we're about, what it is that we're doing here and, and for the work that you're doing. Um, I do truly believe and want to thank all of you who tune into your podcast regularly, who tune in and hear my particular episode, our episode together here, because I truly believe in, in the power of us all unifying in our oneness, in our heart, in our ability that I think is inherent in any individual walking on this earth at this point to be reconnected to who they really are. And again, I write a lot about this in my new book, How to Be the Love You Seek. Really, the power of the heart is beyond what we could even know and quantify, in my opinion. We're starting to quantify a bit of it. 
though, when we all join together in this way, um, again, many of us opening ourselves up to new information and beginning to make these new choices that are much more heart aligned, especially in our relationship with ourselves first and foremost, and then giving and receiving it outward to other people. I, I do truly, I know in my heart that this is the shift and it's a life-changing and a world-changing shift. So I'm always in sincere appreciation and gratitude for every one of all of us that are showing up and doing our individual parts. Wonderful. You have a new book coming out. When will that be out? I do. It is currently on pre-order. It is called How to Be the Love You Seek, and it is coming out at the end of November on November 28th. Amazing. And where can people find you if they don't already uh, know who you are? find me <laughs> across all of, at this point, any social media. So whatever it is your you know, preferred content uh, consumption platform, TikTok, YouTube, Twitter, there X, you are. whatever you want to call it. Instagram, of course, is where it all began. Yes. Um, so across all the platforms, and we're continuing to grow the teams to continue to put these free resources out there. It's such an important mission of ours is to keep having these conversations, to keep putting these actionable tools out into the collective, and also to keep creating these communities because across all of those social media platforms, it's not just about what is going up in the meme or the video or whatever it is. It really, in my opinion, this is, again, was so healing for me is the comments and the individuals who are mm -hmm. so freely and vulnerably sharing of themselves from all over the world. So yes. whatever it is that you like to consume, give a holistic psychologist search in the handle and you'll probably find one of our accounts. Yes. And of course, I'll put everything in the show notes. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining today. I really appreciate our conversation. I appreciate your time. And maybe one day we'll have another conversation. We have lots to dive into. So I will look forward to that in the future time, Jillian. And thank you again. And thank you all for listening. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode of Jillian on Love. I hope you enjoyed the episode. I always want to hear, especially when I interview guests. Like, do you like the guest? Do you want a certain type of guest? I'm always looking to hear from you and to get your feedback and your requests so that I can make this podcast the best possible podcast I can for all of you. So please do not hesitate to reach out to me and my team at hello at jillianonlove.com. And more importantly, or most importantly, please do not hesitate to click share. If there was anything in this that you think could help anyone, you just never know whose life you could be changing just by clicking share. Thanks again for listening. And until next time. Jillian on Love is a Q Code production. Executive produced by David Henning and Steve Wilson, Produced by Shin Yin Hu. Editing and music by Will Tendy. I'm Carlos King, one of the most sought after executive producers in reality television. I am thrilled to announce Reality with the King, where we'll discuss all things reality TV. I have interviewed everyone from Nene Leakes, Teresa Judai and Kenya Moore. Each episode, we will rehash shocking betrayals, honey. Yes! Hilarious shade. And all the drama. Reality with the King podcast is available wherever you get your podcast. 
Are you ready for the ultimate Love Island experience? Join us on After the Island. We're going back to where it all began, Fiji. Love Island USA Season 5 is making a splash on Peacock right now. And guess what? Your favorite recap show is back, too. Welcome to After the Island. Join us as real-life besties and co-hosts, Elizabeth and Alex, as we deep dive into each sizzling episode of Love Island USA. We'll spill the tea, interview contestants, answer fan questions, and give you unprecedented behind-the-scenes access to the wildly popular world of Love Island. Don't miss a single moment of the drama, romance, and unforgettable island vibes. Listen to After the Island on any streaming platform.